It is great to see you. I don't know if uh, I don't know if you realize this, but today is a really important and significant day in the life of New Life Church because today marks a milestone in our ongoing mission of spreading the gospel together. Hey, everybody, take your worship folder out again. Pull that out and and open it up. And uh, do you see there in that middle section down at the bottom where it says Whitehall Campus Standards for Launching or something like that, right? See that there? Many of you know how this came about. Um, This church is overseen by a team of elders. And a little over two years ago, that team began to ask the question, where does Jesus want us to go next to continue to spread the gospel in our city? What's the next community that he wants this church, New Life Church, to bless by starting a new gospel-centered church there? And we started to talk and pray a lot about that and discuss it together and seeking the leading of the Lord in that matter. And uh, as we talked, several different communities were being considered. But more and more, it seemed like the Lord was pinpointing the community of Whitehall as his choice for us. Some of you were here back in the fall of 2013. We actually set aside a week of prayer and fasting about this, seeking the Lord for his confirmation. And I remember when we all came back together at the end of that week as elders, it was unanimous. All of us were convinced that God was taking us to Whitehall. Now, because of some, some mistakes we had made in the past with some of our other church plants, and I say we, and I really mean me, uh, we also sensed the Lord was leading us to go about things a little bit differently than had been our custom. And in particular, we decided to pursue two changes in our approach this time. First, instead of spinning off the new congregation as an independent church, an autonomous church like we'd always done, we felt it wiser to continue an ongoing relationship of oversight and support with the folks that we were sending out. And we researched that and found that other churches were doing the same thing through a strategy that is called multi-site. And so that was new to us, and I'm going to talk about that more in a few moments. Second change we decided to embrace or adopt was instead of Uh, setting a launch date and pushing hard to meet it, we felt compelled instead to establish a number of standards that would need to be in place or conditions that would need to happen before we launched this new campus. So we committed ourselves to a process and we felt that by taking this slower approach that we were really allowing space or room for, for the Lord, the head of the church, Jesus, to exert his influence on that process and as a result exert his influence on the time frame of the launch. So both of those approaches were new to us. The standards that we developed, 12 of them, are printed there on your worship folder in that little section there and as you can see we're coming in on the home stretch. Over the past 20 months we have sought to cooperate with Jesus by diligently praying and working towards seeing each of those things become a reality. And so now, through the, through the power of the Spirit and through the efforts, the, the grace-driven efforts of God's people, guess what? We have unanimous elder team affirmation of the target community, Whitehall. We have our campus pastor, our own beloved Claude Davis. 
we have our Whitehall leadership team fully in place. First year budget was not 70% raised, but 100% raised. We established the minimum number of launch team members needed to launch, which is 85, and counting adults and teens and children, we have that, we have more than that. Some of you were around last fall when we, a hundred of us from this congregation went to Whitehall and we prayed throughout that entire community, prayer walking the neighborhoods there. We took the full Whitehall leadership team through our gospel class, seeking to make sure that everybody was on the, the same page with our church's DNA, that's what I like to call it. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. We did the hard work over the last 18 months of, of working and crafting the structure for this new configuration, clarifying who's going to report to who and how the relationship's going to go between um, Gehanna leadership and Whitehall leadership and things like that. By the grace of God, we now have a place to worship and meet, a base of operations in Whitehall from which to do gospel ministry in that community. And it's, a, it's been a God thing. We did not kick that door open. It was open to us, and we just walked through it. And today, in just a few moments, in fact, milepost number 10 is going to be reached as we're going to invite the entire Whitehall congregation up here to be prayed for and commissioned and sent out. So only two standards remain to be completed, numbers 11 and 12 there. And you here this morning are witnesses that I hold in my very hands. Version 1.0 of the comprehensive, contextualized ministry plan for Whitehall, the Whitehall campus of New Life Church. And uh, our leadership teams are reviewing this. I fully expect our elders to review this and approve it within the next several weeks. So we praise God for that. And then lastly, now that we've walked through the building in which we'll be worshiping, then we can now acquire the necessary equipment and supplies. So God willing, and with these last two standards being met, our Whitehall congregation will be worshiping and ministering in Whitehall as a campus of New Life Church beginning on June the 7th. So we praise Jesus for that. <laughs> we praise Him for that been his deal since the outset. Really, it has. And so although starting on that date, there will be two New Life campuses, one here in Gahanna and one in Whitehall, we will still be one church sharing the same DNA, sharing the same elder team, the same budget, the same staff, one church, one church meeting in two locations. Each congregation on mission in their own respective community to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it with our lips and to practice it with our lives, loving our neighbors as Jesus has loved us. And, and you need to know, this is the kind of thing that gets pastor types like me excited. And, you know, even laying awake at night thinking about this, laying awake in a good sense, um, thinking about what God is going to do. And I know many, many of you are thrilled about this as well. I cannot wait to see how God uses us along with all the other good gospel-preaching churches in Whitehall, and there are, there are several of them, to bless the community of Whitehall and to bring people to Jesus. Now, you could call this an instance of kingdom expansion. This is Jesus the King working through His Spirit and through His people to extend His kingly reign. 
This is the royal monarch of the universe seeking to win more loyal subjects to himself, subjects who delight in loving and serving their king because he laid down his life for them, right? This is the mighty warrior pushing back the opposing forces, going behind enemy lines to rescue more POWs and set them free to serve their new master in his royal kingdom. And so today, I want to take our time together to finish up our series on Jesus' parables by focusing on two short stories that Jesus told that illustrate this very thing, the expansion of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. Many of his parables, in fact, were meant to uncover some truth about his kingdom, some to explain some aspect of this mystery. And so these are two of the shortest and most famous of Jesus' kingdom parables. He shared these for many reasons, I believe, but perhaps mostly because by the time he spoke these two parables to his disciples, they were growing a little bit confused, a little bit perplexed about where this Christianity thing was all going. You see, his disciples had in their minds a vision of the kingdom of Christ that would have been shaped by the Old Testament. They had studied the Old Testament. They had read Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets. And all of the prophets regularly spoke of an era where God's king would come, would come to earth and rule and reign, and wickedness and evil would be judged, and opponents would be banished, and righteousness would prevail on the earth. But for these disciples, as as one year with Jesus had grown into two, and then two into three, the fact of the matter was, to them, it just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. In fact, instead of talking about what he was going to do to evil men, Jesus was more and more talking about what evil men were going to do to him. Instead of Jesus crushing the opposition and establishing himself as king, it sure seemed to them like the opposition in the end was going to end up crushing him. And so Jesus loved his disciples. He wanted them to understand more of God's plan and how it was going to work. And so in this chapter that we're in this morning, Matthew 13, there is recorded for us several parables that Jesus told his disciples in an effort to help them understand and broaden their comprehension of how things were going to work in God's kingdom. You can take your outline out so you can follow along. In that chapter, we find the parable of the soils, which Pastor Brian unpacked for us several weeks ago. And also, there's the parable of the wheat and the tares, which we've alluded to. The parable of the soils revealed that there would be many who would hear the word, hear the message of Jesus' kingship, and they wouldn't accept it because their hearts were hard, unreceptive, or they were shallow, or they were distracted. The other parable, the wheat and the tares, revealed that in God's plan, this was not the time when all of the opposition was going to get wiped out and destroyed. That would come later at the end of the age, and God would do it. In the meantime, both the righteous and the wicked would grow up alongside each other, living together in the, in the kingdom and in the world until the day of final separation and judgment. And so I can imagine as the disciples were there listening to Jesus and taking in what he was saying about these things, I can imagine what the next question was that was formulating in their minds. Well then, Jesus, okay, if that's the case and and you're not going to stomp out the opposition now, are we even going to make it? 
I mean, have you noticed that the opposition is growing in numbers and in zeal? They're out for blood, Jesus, yours and ours. It feels like we're the ones who are going to get stomped out. Are we even going to end up having any impact at all? I mean, if the tares are allowed to grow up alongside the wheat, what's going to stop the wheat from getting choked out? And this whole Christian thing just kind of go away and become a, a faint and distant memory. And so right on the heels of the parables of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares, it says this in verse 31, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or what we would call yeast, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, we've been looking at parables of Jesus for about seven weeks now, and some of them were quite long, right? Well, these are like short and sweet and to the point, I think. And Jesus is laying out before his disciples and us two principles regarding the growth and the impact of his kingdom in the world. And he uses two analogies that would have been very familiar to his listeners there. A man planting a mustard seed in his garden and then a woman baking a loaf of bread. So what do you think Jesus wanted his disciples to understand about his kingdom through these two illustrations or analogies? I think it's pretty easy to grasp. I don't think it's difficult given the context. The first analogy of the mustard seed tells us that Christ's kingdom will see expansive growth from small beginnings. Mustard seed beginnings. This first parable reveals at least three things about this truth. First, his kingdom will start small and will seem quite insignificant. Second, it's going to grow slowly over time. And third, ultimately, it's going to be huge and far-reaching and bless the world. Now, if the disciples got it, if, if they understood what Jesus was saying, they should have been encouraged, right? That should have given them some hope. Oh, okay, okay, we get it now. I mean, they were a little disheartened because the fact of the matter is that they were feeling, at that moment, pretty small. You see, while the number of followers of Jesus had at one time been huge, crowds were showing up. Earlier on in his ministry, back when he was doing all the miracles and healing people and creating food for them and raising some folks from the dead, ever since the Jewish leaders started to feel threatened by his popularity and started plotting to kill him, many of Jesus' fans started to kind of peel off. I mean, they were fearing for their own lives, right? And then Jesus kind of escalated the conflict himself by, by his inflammatory rhetoric, <laughs> which seemed to drive away some more people. Not only that, Jesus had started to kind of raise the bar. I mean, he, he started to call people to total commitment and total allegiance to him, thinning out the crowd even more. And then, when he began talking about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die, 
even many of the loyalists who had stayed with him up to that point, many of them had just had enough. And they're thinking, it's just not happening with this guy. You know, this triumphant kingdom and the stomping out of evil and the emergence of a, a dominant Jewish state and it's, it's not happening. It's a dream that in their minds was dying. But there was a remnant who, who believed and who remained loyal and Jesus wanted to give them hope. And so yes, they did seem very insignificant in that moment, but God's plan was for his kingdom to come not like a tsunami that would rush in suddenly with great force and just kind of overwhelm everyone, but more like a small seed planted in a garden that would grow over time, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, until ultimately its impact would be huge. So that's the principle here. Expansive growth from very small and humble beginnings. And you know what? That's what happened. That's what happened. You can trace the early growth of Christianity through the book of Acts in your New Testament. As it started in Jerusalem and then expanded outward from there to Judea and Samaria and then into Asia Minor and modern day Turkey and Greece and Italy and further on into Europe. If you explore church history and study that, you could trace its expansion from there to the east and then also, thank God, to the West, eventually crossing an ocean with the Puritans who brought the gospel to the shores of North America. And from those original colonies along the eastern seaboard, it spread westward as two great awakenings in our country and a missionary migration expanded gospel Christianity all across our continent. And so we all sit here today in Gehanna, Ohio, worshiping our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, all because of the slow, seed-like growth of the kingdom of God over the past 2,000 years. Now, how many of you know that the Bible has critics? <laughs> how many of you know that Jesus has naysayers? <laughs> okay. And, you know, this is a parable that has um, served as fodder for the critics who want to undermine Jesus and the scriptures. Because they point to Jesus' analogy here of the mustard seed as evidence that, that, that he can't be trusted and that the Bible has errors. Because everybody knows that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed, as Jesus appears to be saying here in this parable. And it is true. There are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. What the critics miss is that Jesus here is talking about a particular category of seeds and shrubs that he calls garden plants. Do you see that? Now, the original word refers specifically to the, the kind of seeds that a farmer would deliberately plant in his garden to grow leafy vegetables, garden greens, meant to be eaten in a good salad, right? Something like that. That's the category of plants that Jesus is referring to here. So, Dr. L.H. Shinners of SMU, who was the director of the herbarium there down in Dallas, Texas, said this. He said, The mustard seed would indeed have been the smallest of those seeds to have been noticed by the people at the time of Christ. The principal field crops of his day, barley, wheat, lentils, and beans, all have much larger seeds 
as do other wild plants which might have been present as weeds. There are various weeds and wild flowers with seeds that are smaller, smaller than mustard, but they would not have been known or noticed by the inhabitants of the land. They are wild, and they certainly would not have been planted as a crop. And so when Jesus said that a man went out and sowed mustard seed in his garden and that it was the smallest seed planted for food, he was spot on. Now, critics usually don't give up very easily, and they would not be dissuaded, so they found something else in here to to attack. They contend that Jesus was also wrong in saying that the mustard seed grows into a tree, in verse 32, because everybody knows that mustard is basically a, a bush, a shrub, not a tree. And so they attack him on that front. But you know, research indicates that in that region, the mustard shrub typically grew to a height of seven to eight feet. So that's pretty tall. It's a big bush. But some even grew to 12 or even 15 feet tall, tall enough that a rider of that day said, it, said some grew to the height where a horse and a rider could ride underneath the branches of a mustard tree. And so these mustard bushes could grow to such a height as to have tree-like properties. So if you can ride a, ride a horse under it and it has branches, you could call it a tree, right? Look, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he was talking about shrubs because he made shrubs. He created everything. He made plants. We can trust him when he talks about seeds and plants. And we can trust him when he talks about how, how the tiny mustard seed form of his kingdom would grow and expand over time to the point where one day it would provide shelter and protection for many people in the world. And that was his main point. You know, see where it talks about, you know, this mustard bush growing tall and birds of the air coming and nesting in it? That's a reference to the, the blessing and the benefit of Christianity in the world. You think about all the hospitals over the years that have been started by Christians. Thousands of them. Think about all the orphanages that have been begun and are maintained by followers of Jesus Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Think about the foundations of civil society that provide law enforcement and legal protections for people and how it's the, the Christian worldview that undergirds and supports much of that. That's the world being blessed by the kingdom. That's the birds of the air nesting in the branches of the mature mustard tree. So, you get the idea? Great impact from small beginnings. That is God's plan. And, and really, knowing that should have given those disciples, as I said, hope and encouragement. Now, a, a related principle was given by Jesus through this second parable. So let's review that for a moment in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. First, you need to realize that three measures of flour was a lot. Uh, the loaf that would have been baked from three measures of flour could, could have fed a hundred people. <laughs> now, in that day, the custom for a baker was this. When, when bread was about to be baked, a small piece of the dough would first be pinched off 
before the loaf went into the oven. And that little lump of leaven would be uh, dropped in a, a, a little container of water and it would be left there over time to ferment. And that was called leaven. And later on, that little small bubbling ball of leaven would be inserted into the next batch of dough where although it was hidden and invisible, it would spread throughout that batch over time, causing it to what? To rise and to, to expand. So a little leaven would permeate the whole batch of dough. Now, those of you who know your Bibles know that leaven is mentioned a lot in the Bible, and it, it, it always has this idea of growing influence, often for evil. Jesus spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees. Be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he was, he was warning against being influenced by the evil hearts and mindset of the Pharisees. But here, this usage is, is obviously positive. The kingdom principle from this parable, I, I think, again, is easy to understand. Christ's kingdom will have a permeating influence from hidden power, and it's an influence that will be good and not evil, right? What we learn from this little parable are several things. Christ's kingdom possesses an innate power to transform whatever it comes in contact with. Now, I'm an example of that. I came into contact with the kingdom of Christ a number of years ago, and my life was changed. How many of you would, would say the same happened for you? Okay. It, it has its own power, okay? And this transforming power would be inserted into this world, but would remain relatively hidden or, or invisible within the larger world system. And that's true. But third, over time, it would exert a growing influence from within, like the leaven, that would ultimately permeate every aspect of life in this world. You see that? permeating influence from arising from hidden power. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament of your Bible is full of predictions and promises of a coming worldwide kingdom where the glory of God is going to cover the earth. Where global peace and righteousness will prevail. Where a royal descendant of King David would rule over the nations from his throne in Jerusalem and for centuries upon centuries, the Jewish nation had lived in anticipation of that. Then along came Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus presented himself as a king, as the Messiah, as the promised anointed one. And so naturally, the people, the Jewish people, fully expected him to usher in this new era of global dominion and triumph and prominence and glory and restoration. And indeed, for a season, Jesus did give people a foretaste of what that would be like one day. He healed some diseases, right? He cast out some demons. He raised some dead people. He was giving a preview of the fullest form of his kingdom that was yet to come. And when he did that, it, it was so impressive that on one occasion, the people just said, you know, this is so cool. Let's just make him king right now. Does anyone have a crown? <laughs> They just wanted to have a coronation right then and there. And, and yet, as we noted, things began to change. 
this Messiah, King, seemed to have another mission in his mind, a mission of suffering that seemed to override that triumphant kingdom vision. And he started to say puzzling things like, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom does not come with observation. In other words, you, you, you can't see it. On another occasion, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. And so Jesus spoke more of a spiritual kingdom, not a political one, a spiritual one where he would reign in people's hearts. He called upon people to give him their complete allegiance and even be willing to take up their cross and follow him wherever he might lead, even to death. And frankly, that just wasn't playing very well in Peoria. <laughs> Even his closest disciples were a bit befuddled. They were scratching their heads, you know. And so here with the analogy of leaven, Jesus reveals another aspect of the mystery of his kingdom. That although it does possess great power, it would be hidden for a time and be obscure. But over time, its influence would spread from within to the point where one day it would permeate everything in the entire world as the kingdom would emerge in its full and final form. I think these are very intriguing parables, don't you? Very intriguing. And I believe Jesus shared them in order to correct wrong thinking or inaccurate thinking about his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom, the timing of its full manifestation, how exactly it would spread and grow. He wanted his disciples to understand that, that, yes, there would be great impact one day, but it, it would start small, it would come from small and humble beginnings, that it would not be instantaneous, but it would be a process over time. It wouldn't be explosive, like a blitzkrieg kind of a thing, or like a sudden tsunami, but, but like a seed growing in the ground, like a small lump of dough stuffed into a huge batch. The tiny seed would grow into a large shrub-like tree that would provide shade and shelter for many, and the little lump would spread through the whole batch, eventually permeating it fully and expanding its size so that many, many people would be nourished by it. Now, I intentionally chose these parables for this day, this milestone day in the life of our church here, because I think it's important for all of us to understand that it is in the heart of God to grow his kingdom. It's in, it's in the, the heart of God to expand the influence of his son, Jesus Christ, in the world. And as we prepare to take the gospel into Whitehall, we do well to understand that this is God's mission. He's been at it for a long time. We're simply joining God in His mission in the world. Does that make sense? We're also well aware that there are other churches in Whitehall committed to this very thing. So we are also joining them as they join God in His mission of expanding the influence of the kingship of Jesus. But also, let's be reminded that our church here does carry a, a, a distinct DNA. Now, you know what DNA is, remember? Ninth grade biology class. And DNA is really what makes us who we are, right? <laughs> and individuals have DNA, and my belief is that churches also have 
DNA that makes us what we are. And certainly, Jesus has made a unique imprint on this body of believers. If you ask me, Steve, what, what is it that we want to see replicated in Whitehall as we go? I, I wouldn't flinch. I would say it's our DNA. Um, some methods, sure. Some programs, yeah. But more importantly is the DNA that all of those things flow out of. We want to spread our gospel-centered DNA because we believe it's worth spreading. Because we believe it's faithful to a true understanding of the Word of God. And so when I talk about our church's DNA, I see it as having two strands, okay? There's doctrinal DNA and there's ministry DNA. So our doctrinal DNA is contained in our church's statement of faith. So all of you who through the years have become ministry partners here. In the New Life class, when you took it, you received our church's statement of faith. That's our doctrinal DNA. You know what? It hasn't changed. It's orthodox, evangelical, Christian doctrine that stood the test of time. I mean, it it contains what we believe about the Bible and about God and Jesus and about man and sin and salvation and the church and angels and demons and Satan and the end times and the Holy Spirit. It's our core convictions about those things. And we know that we stand on the shoulders of many godly believers of years gone by who've lived and died for those beliefs. And we want to carry those cherished beliefs, those cardinal convictions, that doctrinal DNA. We want to carry that into Whitehall and spread it there. Then... There's our ministry DNA. And I'd like to take a couple minutes and share with you what we're teaching in our most current version of our New Life class. So turn your outline over, and on the back, it has our ministry DNA. That's our church's mission and vision and motto and core values and strategy. So let me review them for a few moments. If you said to me, Steve, what is New Life Church trying to do? What is New Life trying to accomplish? I'll always answer that question the same way. We're seeking to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. That's been in our DNA for decades. Seeking to lead people. People need to be led to Christ, right? Lead people into a transforming relationship. How many of you know that when Christ through his spirit takes up residence in your heart, it begins to change you? It begins to change you. That's the kingship of Christ coming into contact with an individual, and it begins to change you, a transforming relationship. That's the essence of Christianity. Not rituals, not religion, but a relationship. Leading people into that through the gospel. You see, that's how we first enter into the relationship by believing the gospel, and it's also how we continue nourishing and strengthening that transforming relationship by continuing to believe the gospel on ever deeper levels. You say, well, what, what, what's, what's our vision? What's our preferred picture of the future? Well, more and more people and communities transformed by the gospel. As long as there are people who haven't heard, who don't know, who are not yet believers in Christ, as long as there are communities that are not yet reflecting 
the kingship of Christ, our work is not done until we lock eyes with Jesus Christ, right? More and more people, and people tend to live in communities. We want to see gospel transformation until Jesus comes. And notice that little phrase, making Jesus famous. So I want to I say it again, here at New Life, we are not about making any human being a celebrity. We're, we're against that, okay? We, we've seen that in other situations. Not only is it evil, it doesn't work. All men have feet of clay. We're not here to make a name for me or Pastor Claude or Pastor Brian or any of us. We want Jesus Christ to be the name that is on the lips of people in Gehanna and in Whitehall and wherever we go. Don't you want to see Jesus made famous? I mean, it's our heartbeat here. So we've latched on to this little motto. It's been on our worship folder for a while now. Jesus front and center all the time. Jesus front and center all the time. Whenever we have guests here and some last night came up to me afterwards. I always say, thank you for coming. How'd you hear about New Life? And I, and I usually say, you know, if you continue to come here, I, I'm making you a promise, you're going to hear about Jesus a lot. And so if you do not like Jesus, you're going to be uncomfortable here <laughs> until you grow to love him and surrender to him and adore him and worship him like the rest of us do. And that's our hope and prayer, right? And be redeemed. Well, at New Life, we have four core values. We have a lot of values, but I'd call four of them core values. The first is gospel at the center. The gospel of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection for our redemption and our forgiveness must be given center stage in this church. Now, many things can, can compete for the spotlight in a church. Do you know that? I've been in church for 50 years. I've seen all kinds of different things competing for center stage in the life of a church, even some good things. You know, the personality of a pastor, a particular program, the building. But our conviction is that nothing should be allowed to displace Jesus and him crucified from the, the spotlight, the center stage in the life of this church. That's a core, core conviction. Very intentional about that. Second, when you get that gospel down into your bones, when you believe it, you know what it does? It shapes how you begin to think about yourself. It begins to shape your identity. The power of the gospel to tell us what God thinks of us. You know who you are first and foremost? You are not what the middle school kids when you went to middle school said about you. You're not. You're not what that teacher or coach or parent communicated to you about your value and worth. If you're in Christ, who you are first and foremost is who God says you are. God says you are saints and servants and sons and daughters and worshipers and disciples and missionaries and ambassadors that you're forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, justified, cleansed. That's who you are. And this, this gospel of Christ shapes who we see ourselves to be core conviction. Jesus' people must grow to see themselves as God sees them. But you know what? Jesus doesn't just do that to us as individuals and then say, hey, go live in a monastery somewhere and meditate on that. No, he groups us together in community, right? And that's the next value, gospel-formed community that Jesus' people must experience this life in the gospel together in small groups. 
especially in a church our size, we're, we're always thinking about how can we break this down into smaller sized groups so people can get into each other's lives. So the gospel not only shapes our self-perception, but it shapes and forms how we relate to one another in this body. And so we talk about gospel characteristics like grace, treating one another with grace and kindness and patience and forgiveness and transparency and openness and priority and service. And then the gospel, as we believe it and get it down into our bones, drives us out into the world on mission. Amen? We're not like just all cloistered around singing songs about Jesus. I mean, we do that, but, but, but who was the first missionary? It was Jesus. Jesus lived in heaven. And, you know, he pretty much had it going on up there in heaven. It was a, a good lifestyle for him, but he chose to leave that and come to earth and live a perfect life and die and rise from the grave so that we could have redemption And then he says, even as I was sent, so I am sending you. Mission into the world. Jesus' people must be on gospel mission together with Jesus. He taught us to love our neighbors, right? We call that, we coined our own term, love works. (laughs) Love works are all the good things that Jesus' people do to love and serve their neighbors because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And so those are four core values deep, deep, deep in us. Our strategy then is very simple. Reach, train, and send. Reach people with the gospel, train them deeper in the gospel, and then send them out for the gospel. That's what Jesus did. Reach, train, send. This, this is the new life ministry DNA. This is what is shaping us. This is, what, this is what Jesus has called us to be and to do. And now today is sending day. Today is sending day. And you know, there are lots of different kinds of sending. We prayed earlier for our women who are being sent out into our community. We're commissioning them to teach God's word and invite their neighbors and friends in to... to come into contact with the kingship of Jesus. You can be sent into your workplace as an ambassador for Christ or onto your campus to be a light for Jesus there. Our backyard kids clubs are the same thing, being sent out into our our community. Small group sends out a daughter group to shepherd and disciple new people. We send people out on missions trips and serving teams all the time. Lots of different kinds of sendings, but this kind of sending that we're doing here today is unique, and it's special. This is sending out a whole bunch of our fellow ministry partners, our brothers and sisters in this family of new life, sending them into another community to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Christ to shepherd and disciple new believers, to enfold them into a new flock. Now, we've done this a number of times before, and in my experience, it's always been kind of bittersweet. And God has seen fit over the years to use New Life to help seven other churches get started. And my experience has always been the same. There's an exhilarating joy in knowing that the mission is going forward, and we get to be in it. 
And there's also a bit of a sense of loss as, as relationship patterns change a little bit. But let me say this. One of the beautiful features of the multi-site church is that we do not have to sever all ties. We're still one church. We're just worshiping and serving in different communities. And for some purposes, we will continue serving together as we share certain ministries across all of our campuses. And so hopefully the bittersweetness will be heavy on the sweet and light on the bitter. That's my hope. Right now, we're going to do this. So I would like for all of our Whitehall congregation. Now, some of you wondered where your seat went over here this morning. We had it roped off, so all of our Whitehall folks are going to come up front right now, and in a moment you're going to get the opportunity to come and pray over them. But I want you to know this has been a God thing since the beginning. I mean, truly, church, we have sought to, to follow Jesus in this. We, 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 we sought to not rush ahead. We didn't want to rush ahead of Jesus. We didn't want to lag behind him. We wanted to keep in step with the work of the Spirit in the forming of this congregation that's going to be going to Whitehall. And so, here we are. It's a lot of folks, isn't it? And we're, we're thrilled about that. For the last 18 months, God has been working to form a mission-minded congregation who has that DNA that I just talked about in them, and they're carriers of it, and now going to a neighboring community to spread the love of Christ there. And so... I am super excited about what God is doing. And so here's 